Welcome to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. My name is Fregel Byrne. Every week I speak to leading sustainability thinkers and practitioners, scientists, economists, NGOs, business leaders and investors. We discuss the sustainability imperative, the key challenges, the latest thinking and what's working in sustainability, resilience and regeneration. Before we begin this week's episode, here's a message about our partner, Global Witness. Global Witness, a pioneering campaigning NGO that exposes the environmental and human rights abuses by some of the world's biggest companies and most powerful political figures. For 25 years, they've campaigned against the exploitation of the Earth's natural resources, the destruction of indigenous peoples, and corruption that has siphoned billions of dollars from the poorest countries. Global Witness doesn't just expose the abuse of power, it works to transform the systems that allow this abuse to flourish unchecked. Find out more at globalwitness.org. I'm very pleased today to welcome Professor Danny Dorling to the podcast. Danny is an English social geographer and is the Halford Mackinder Professor of Geography of the School of Geography and the Environment of the University of Oxford and previously a Professor of Geography at the University of Sheffield. His work primarily concerns issues of housing, health, employment, education, wealth and poverty. A prolific author, Danny has written All That Is Solid, Injustice, Why Social Inequality Still Persists and A Better Politics. Slow Down, The End of the Great Acceleration and Why It's Good for the Planet, the Economy and Our Lives was published earlier this year. So thank you very much, Danny, for joining me today on the Sustainability Agenda podcast. Uh, Thanks ever so much for having me. So I'm um, very much looking forward to talking to you about your new book uh, and, and, and recent books and research, Danny. Just maybe to begin, by way of background for listeners, can you maybe set the scene a little bit, uh, what you do, what your research interests are in general? Ah, okay. I'm a professor of geography, which means I can do many things. The great thing about uh, geography in the UK as an academic discipline is there really aren't any boundaries to what you're allowed to look at. Uh, I began a very long time ago in the late 1980s looking at computer mapping and visualization and uh, then I began began to look at inequality mainly because inequality was rising uh, in the 80s and the 90s and the 2000s. Trends over time is what interests me and so the slowdown book, the most recent thing, uh, is trying to get a sense of, of what is changing in what direction? And it wasn't supposed to be called Slow Down. It was supposed to be a book about what's getting faster and what's slowing down. Uh, but I couldn't find enough things that were actually speeding up, uh, hence, hence the book. Uh, so I, I get to play with data. Uh, that's mainly what I do. I use data to address arguments which are often political, but I try to throw something in uh, which is new uh, for people. Um, and if it's new for me, if I find something that surprises me by looking at numbers, then I hope it's also new for the readers and listeners. Very interesting. Uh, and a counterintuitive uh, topic, really, slow down for many people, uh, I guess, their, their experience or their, the, the way we relate to early 21st century life is, is one of a sense of uh, things speeding up. That's, and that's the story we're telling as well. So we come on to that, and, I, and it's very interesting indeed. I'd like to set the scene also a little bit and just clearly um, we facing a number of serious uh, interlocking environmental crises, social crises, 
I'm just wondering what in particular is on your mind at the moment, Bonnie. Oh, well, as of today, while we're talking, um, it's I'm based in England and it's what is going to happen next with inequality in the population. What happens with the furlough schemes? I've just been looking at a Treasury report today where the, the UK Treasury claims its intervention slightly narrowed the gap between rich and poor, and I've found it's completely wrong. Um, you just look at their numbers and they've interpreted them wrong. They may have made a genuine mistake. But at the very end of that report, they cite two other reports which they say backed them up. And so I went to look at those and found, found that they didn't. Uh, so that's the kind of thing I, I look at. I mean, my, my worry, and it's an obvious worry for most people, is um, we are looking at increasing numbers of people who are going to be in some ways destitute. Uh, currently, I'm speaking to you at the end of uh, July, it's about 10 million households in the UK are facing destitution, 25 million people. And this is even before the furlough schemes, which haven't helped reduce inequalities much, are wound up. Before all the school leavers and university leavers try to enter a job market which doesn't exist in September and October. So that's today's preoccupation. A, a grim picture. It, it seems in, in, in many ways that some, some tectonic plates are shifting. I mean, during the crisis, side by side of tremendous stories, I guess, of individual solidarity, at the same time, there are all kinds of machinations going on. The US is rolling back environmental protection. We see emergency government powers in many countries uh, for how long, who knows. Unaccountable deals with suppliers, uh, as we see in the UK. And at the same time, there does seem to be a genuine uh, people seem not to want things to go back to normal in, in various different ways. At least that's what they're saying. There's talk of, of a wealth tax or it's a whisper, maybe, uh, universal basic income in Spain. Um, periods like this where, where things are, should we say, fluid. I'm just wondering, how do you parse the, the, the current situation? I mean, maybe talk about the UK first, but any other uh, and, and things we, we need to look out for that are indicators. Uh, so we're right in the middle of it, and I know it's, it's not easy to uh, read the tea leaves in that respect. Uh, no, it isn't. And you've always got to be aware of, of we have a real sort of short-termism about us. We tend to think that the month or the year that we're living in is incredibly important. Uh, and the political events of our time are incredibly important. Um, however, <laughs> this might be it, um, but you need to have that in, in the back of your mind. Uh, incredible surveys of the population being done, for instance, by, by the Office of National Statistics, uh, discovering that large proportions of people have actually quite welcomed uh, many of the changes to their lives. They didn't like commuting into the office to do that boring job that they were doing. Uh, and that is interesting, even with the fear of destitution uh, rising. And again, just to, to give you an example of the myopic kind of thinking, uh, we're speaking on the 23rd of July, and on the 23rd of July, two uh, House of Commons committees, the Treasury Committee and the Public um, Affairs Committee, both produced reports damning the government. And what's fascinating about this is that both committees have a majority of Conservative MPs on them. Um, so it's not what you would necessarily expect. We are uh, at a point when things really could change, uh, not least because it's very, very hard to see how they could carry on as they were before. Um, and then the worry is, will they change in the right direction? 
To what extent will people be carried with the change and looked after? To what extent might the change become an even greater crisis? Uh, or will we be sensible in the way that we do things? And I tend to look across the whole of Europe, uh, which is gives you cause for much greater optimism than looking at the United States, for instance. It's easy to focus, or Brazil, it's easy to focus on areas that are worst. Um, or looking, it has to be said, at, at, at Eastern Asia, uh, looking at Japan and Vietnam and, above all else, China, and in some ways how well they have dealt with the pandemic, which, all else being equal, should have hurt them the most because it came there first. Yes, yes, absolutely. That's, that's, that's very interesting. And um, unfolding, <laughs> as, as you yes. say, uh, currently right now. I, I guess it brings up an issue I maybe was going to talk about a little later, but uh, <laughs> um, I don't quite know where this falls. One of your hats, Danny, but uh, how social change happens. As you say, because uh, the political system here in the UK, uh, it doesn't seem to matter what people think at a certain level. Um, well, there's a tremendous uh, conservative majority. And uh, certainly, I guess, well, that's in a, looking over maybe a five-year time horizon, which maybe on the, the grand scale of things isn't that long. But is that something you, you've looked at or, or get a sense of? I have done a few papers um, on turning points in history. Uh, so I've so, so, done a, 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 trying to guess at how social change uh, happens. And this is with measures. So the things I look at are inequalities, the gap between the rich and the poor, how that uh, fell and then rose. Um, but other things, uh, people's attitudes, the extent to which people are racist and so on. Um, actually, even the number of children that people have and at what age they have them. And one interesting thing there is that if you draw some of these graphs over 100 years of some of these changes, uh, general elections appear to have almost no effect on them. That's not saying that politics doesn't matter, but that's saying you shouldn't get carried away with the fact that there is a giant conservative majority now. It, it doesn't necessarily mean, or take the turn towards inequality. That turn actually began around about 1974, 75 or 76 in the UK, before the 79 government came in. Uh, now, of course, that government solidified it, but then they won elections in 83 and 87, and at the same time in the States, uh, Reagan was in. But it, it, the fact that it began before, yeah, I think, really matters and we can often look at the wrong thing uh and see it as crucial i in hindsight now uh for the uk trying to ask how did the uk go from being one of the most equitable countries in europe uh, of large countries only sweden was more equal in the 70s how did it go from that to being the most inequitable the biggest gap between rich and poor now and why uh and you have to then look at what was different about the UK to other countries. And, and the big difference in hindsight was that, unlike anywhere else in the rest of Europe, the UK, and particularly England, has been the heart of the biggest empire the world had ever known and was losing its colonies uh, and lost India after the war, but then lost numerous colonies in, in Africa in the 60s and some in the 70s. And anywhere which is the heart of an empire, when it loses its empire, gets poorer. And, you know, that's the lens that I look at that term. Um, and I look at I look at the voting in the UK, uh, and you you could look now at the kind of the crisis of identity now that England in particular has all this going around about Brexit and what else uh, we're doing, and and 
say, if we could only step back, if we only had a way of traveling forward in time and looking back and disengaging ourselves, it, it may well be that there was something else extremely odd. And, you know, because I look at inequality and the fact we'd become the most unequal country, I can't help thinking that that was a real precursor to what's been happening in the UK recently. Uh, people in favor of inequality always put down the problems that inequality causes, for instance, being able to get a house, being able to get your kids into school, or the problems of a health service. They always tend to put it down to immigrants. That's what you blame um, when the real reason is rising inequality. And it kind of fits fits our times at the moment. Um, but one nice thing, well, <laughs> one fortunate thing about being in a pandemic is at least it's kind of shut people up a bit about immigration at the moment. Well, in fact, more than that, um, the Black Lives Matter movement rising up, the agenda so very fast, is probably not uh, independent of the fact that, that we're living through a pandemic. Right, right. That's very interesting. You, you, you mentioned that the, this uh, inequality started at, at maybe earlier in the 70s. To what extent, I mean, when, when we talk about the, the climate and the environmental crisis, um, some of the people I've spoken to talk about, you know, particular phase of what they call neoliberal economics, uh, extreme globalized markets, deregulation and so forth, uh, having a, a huge impact, a uh, huge impact on, on various aspects of that. To what extent is that also, do you think, an important driving factor in, in, in inequality? Oh, well, there was a limits to growth uh, issue. We, we were after the Second World War clocking up uh, increases of GDP, 2 or 3% a year, sometimes even more, uh, that were utterly unsustainable. And we were doing that by exploiting more of the planet, by exploiting uh, populations, growing populations in the poor parts of the world. They were a market that was growing. And that absolutely clearly uh, was not sustainable. Uh, but um, it was hard to see at the time or... And also, those who were saying it's not sustainable also couldn't see the change coming. The, the, the thing that interests me most on, on this is there was a book called The Population Bomb, which was published in 1968. And it was actually published at the height of human population growth, uh, when growth was rising by about 2.1% a year in the total number of humans on the planet. And there was a mathematician who wrote a paper pointing out that at this rate of growth, everybody would be uh, within a, i think a couple of hundred years the whole planet would be a swarming mass of human beings all touching each other and what he was trying to say is we're at a high point this this is not going to continue it can't continue uh, the news this week uh, an article in the lancet suggesting uh, that population growth may peak at eight or nine billion uh, rather than 10 or sometimes the un says 11. now this, by the year before 2100 um, and this gives, gives, gives your listeners a sense of what we don't know. Like we're talking about within the next 80 years, what's going to happen to the number of people on the planet? And will, for the first time in human history without disaster, will the size of our species stop rising? And we're that unsure. But, but to contrast that back, 1968, the population bomb, they thought it was all over. Uh, the book ends talking about letting people die in poor parts of the world and not sending food. Uh, and now this week, we we have a debate going on about are we going to peak much earlier? How incredibly low fertility rates have got, how few children people are having, even before, even before the effects of the pandemic 
which we think will actually produce it even more. Korea is now famously well less than one child per couple. That's halving. Uh, and news reporters are writing stories about, about uh, data coming out at the moment, just saying how fewer children uh, we are having. So, you know, there, there is quite a change going on. Um, and there's also just so much we don't know. I, I think the population numbers are so useful for when we talk about certainty and other things. The fact we do not even know how many of us there will be. And this is within 80 years, which is less than a human lifetime in the rich parts of the world. Fascinating. I, I, I want to talk about um, uh, population in an in, in environmental context in a moment. But, but firstly, how important is population growth economically? You, I mean, a big topic, but kind of give an overview of, of, of that. I, I'm not sure uh, something that's always clearly understood. Oh, no, it, it isn't. And it was really very important to capitalism. It's the form of capitalism that, that we have had and, you know, which sort of began 400 years ago, but really didn't spread greatly to 300 to 250 years ago, uh, relies on ever greater markets. Uh, and you can get ever greater markets in various ways. One is by invading places and bringing them into your system. Uh, so the UK invaded, I think it's 173 of the current or 171 of the current 193 members of, of the UN. And the country I'm in walked in uninvited at some point. Uh, but also you get growing markets if you have population growth. And if you look at how from when it was about 1820, we went from 1 billion to 2 billion to 4 billion to now almost 8 billion. Um, that allows you to sell more shirts. It allows you to sell more bottles of Coca-Cola, particularly to a young population you only have to do as well as you were doing the year before and if your market is getting bigger you, you can make a profit and making a profit is what's it's what it's all about that becomes dramatically harder as population growth ends which is already done in japan and is about to do in many other places in much of europe actually we're seeing it but also as people get older wiser harder to fall by advertising and as also, people become much better educated. You know, we're sending majorities to university in much of this continent at the moment. And the idea that you will be able to convince them that they need to buy a, a, such a quantity of goods, such an enormous amount of clothes for themselves, more than they could ever wear out, uh, or convince them that they need to keep on buying new computers, <laughs> because I don't, this is what fascinates me. You know, I'm using my computer to do word processing, bit of a spreadsheet, okay, some video processing, but nothing I couldn't do, nothing I couldn't do on the Windows system I had in 1989. But yet, the people who make computers are managing to design them to become obsolete within a few years. Um, and this this kind of thing is ridiculous. Yeah. The, the in inequality, on the one hand, we're talking about, and, and, and uh, you know, a small percentage of uh, people who control, you know, huge uh, uh, portions of resources and, and, and population. And, and, and it's interesting in respect to the, the carbon emissions. And I know uh, Oxfam, I think it was Oxfam did a, did a report, uh, and I, I know this is something you've looked at as well, is how, what a significant proportion of carbon emissions are due to uh, rich consumers, shall we say? Oh, oh yeah, it's it's, inc it's, inc it's incredible. Oxfam have done good reports, but also uh, Piketty and his colleagues uh, have done some brilliant reports on this. 
And it's staggering that the, the top 10% produce the large majority of carbon, uh, the bottom 50% in any country, a really small amount of the, for that country. Um, every day, more people who are born who will never fly. Um, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's really skewed. Yeah, worrying about population numbers and carbon is just silly. Well, yeah, that's an important trope. It's an idea which is quite seems to be quite well established in, in certain uh, communities. Certain you, you, you mentioned the, the carbon problem or the global warming, and they go straight to this question of population. It's interesting because the green movement used to be worried about population massively, and then it then it the majority of it moved. You know, the, George Monbiot writes about why population isn't the problem, and so on. I, I saw Jonathan, um, oh, the, the head of Friends of the Earth. Still worrying and, uh, about it, but generally it, it's older men in the green movement who worry about population now, um, and not others. That that battle has has largely been won. Uh, but also, it's well, I've got to make a confession here. You know, I work in a school of job for the environment. I think of myself as fairly green. Um, but when the pandemic came in March, twelve flights i've been booked on to go and give talks were cancelled and i had no idea i was going to be flying 12 times i had taken it out of my head that i was doing that i didn't count going to ireland as flying yeah yes i, 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 I was going to ask what is the consumption because there were 24 hours in the day where is this excess consumption, you know, what, that's driving the carbon? is it as i mean as you're suggesting that a lot of it's to do with 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 flying Flying and other travel um, and, and driving uh, and, you know, big cars and and also, I mean, we have a significant number of households in, in the UK who have more cars than they can actually drive and are <laughs> driving a lot. Uh, but also not worrying about the heating bill, because if you are in the top 10 percent, it's a bit annoying when you get the heating bill. But it's not, a, you know, you never turn the thermostat down because you're trying to save money. Um it's, it's poor people who do that. Uh, but the embedded carbon in the things that we buy and the fact that we throw away so much, these enormous waste bins outside our houses. The, you know, the, the average family now throws away six times more than its parents did. And I, I, I can see this clearly in my family. We have uh, three enormous bins outside. Okay, one's recycling, one's garden, one is conventional waste. They're all... Uh, at least twice as big as the tiny tin bin that the family of six I grew up in had. Uh, and I grew up in a middle-class household. Yeah, you know. Uh, so it, it's the embedded carbon uh, in things that are purchased, but also for the extremely rich, uh, running two or three properties, or if you're in America, 11, 12, or 13 properties, if you're very rich, the, the cost of doing that, moving between those properties, having pri private planes, um, and yeah, yeah. Um, it's it's quite staggering. Yes. Now, um, you 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 mentioned in the book that um, well, I suppose you know uh, clearly on the face of it, a, a a falling population or a decrease in the rate of population growth is has uh, good is good news environmentally um, in terms of resources that are being used and so forth, but. I, I wonder, and in your book, uh, to what extent you take into account the fact that the idea, of, I guess, of the, the ecological footprint and, and, and the consumption patterns of America, which are clearly, you know, multiple of, 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 of other countries, uh, even, even developed countries, but that um, uh, uh, poorer countries are on that trajectory and uh, maybe not with the, uh, that, that pace and maybe not going to that scale. 
But understandably, there are you know huge uh, sections of the, the the population of the of, in, in the world who, who who do want and need a higher standard of living and material uh, goods to go with that. And is that not still very worrying? Oh, it's worrying, uh, but but most worrying at all is, is is that we are paying a proportion of society to convince people that they want more things. You know, the whole advertising industry is all about convincing you you want something that if they didn't convince you, you wouldn't otherwise get. Um, so so we should worry about that. In America, I think it's four percent of GDP goes in advertising. In UK, it's two percent, and in mainland Europe, it's one percent. But yeah, from a from a research perspective, what would where would you point to to show what a natural level of consumption is? Because there are all kinds of things that go into that drive consumption, and clearly, uh, you know, you've got the conspicuous consumption and and you know, uh, relative consumption and things like that. Okay, well, what is I I, I I would do it pragmatically. So there are two countries I'd point to in the rich world, uh, which are Finland and Japan. Uh, and they're, they're, if you look at their levels of consumption, they show what is possible. Now, the problem for both of those countries is that we, if everybody behaved like the average person in Japan, we would still need two planets. But in the US, it's four planets. Uh, so there's still a long way to go, even from uh, those countries which have uh, done, done the best, and often not done the best by planning to do the best, simply because the ways in which their societies are organised uh, people don't need to consume as much. For instance, in Japan, it, it, it's it's a society based on public transport. Every year, the number of cars in Japan, I think for over 20 years, has fallen compared to the year before. Not because of a, of a government policy, uh, but just because driving is such a stupid thing to do. Uh, whereas in the United States, uh, the extreme example in the States was, 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 I think it's a small town in Texas, where the mayor opposed the introduction of pavements, uh, uh, where you know people could walk, uh, because pavements, he said, was the beginning of the road to communism, and you know it's these huge differences uh, in how we plan, how we operate, how we live our lives. But Japan and Finland, it's about two planets, so it obviously needs to um, <laughs> uh, carbon reduction needs to halve in in those two, uh, but other people in the world could come up to that level and it's sustainable. Uh, and you could also look at the, you know, a, a few small technological advances. I'm against seeing technology as our way out of this, but uh, the growing of protein uh, without sunlight, actually absorbing carbon, um, which massively which allows you not to factory farm meat, those kind of things are happening now. Uh, and it, but it's the choice of actually doing it, of implementing it that, that will matter. And it, the other one is ch changing our patterns of holidays, what, what we do to enjoy ourselves. Um, this idea that you have to fly to get away, to rest. Again, that was a fabricated thing. And if we look at the data, if we look at people's happiness, which I've done in the UK, we actually find that holidays, even though you might, you're, people listening might be crying out for a holiday or, you know, they've just had one, um, their first one all year. But on average, the net effect of a holiday on, on happiness is zero. Um, often because our expectations, I think, are higher. Um, people end up arguing, it rains, it's not as great as you thought. Sure, that, that, that underlying it is this idea, it's called the hedonic cycle, or the idea that the, beyond a certain level of material welfare, that uh, happiness and, and other variables like that don't improve. 
Yeah. And the other thing, if you want to be optimistic about this, is how much we are discovering about ourselves. We're, we're very mean with ourselves. We get very frustrated that we can't learn really, really quickly. Um, but it's only been since the 1950s or 60s in the USA that, that we've known what it is like for a population to have mass affluence. Um, this really is, is quite recent. My parents were middle class, uh, but both grew up with no double glazing because nobody had double glazing. You had ice on the inside of the windows. You got cold at times in a way that is unnecessary. So the, the affluence that we have now, which we don't need to improve much further, is new. Air conditioning is a lovely example. Um, you don't need a new kind of air conditioning in the future that is accurate to within a tenth of a degree. Air conditioning works. You have to worry about the power that's used for it. You have to work out how on earth can we do it without consuming so much power. But it isn't that there is yet another increase in standard of living where we heat better, where we, you know, create our environment better. We've we've got there in many ways. You know, we yeah yeah we have a we have a, a washing machine and, and a tumble dryer. There isn't a third and fourth white box that is needed. Oh, somebody would desperately try to invent one to get us to buy. Uh, but it it's that realization. Um, do you see, the do you see, yeah, the, the consumer society is entirely or very largely driven by advertising. I mean, if you look at we're talking about consumerism and which is like more broadly a kind of materialism. You know, do you not need to kind of unpack that a little bit and look at some of that and maybe, you know, what, what is materialism about? That uh, it, it, in a way, I mean, clearly advertising is important and uh, a significant driver. But in terms of change and in terms of looking at new ways forward, do you think just reducing, you know, banning advertising, I'm not suggesting that you're, you're you know, <laughs> is, is, yeah. is, is the way forward. I mean, we live in a very materialistic moment. Yeah. Uh, oh, oh, we do. It's tricky, but but again, we're discovering things. It's my optimism. So, <laughs> you, you know, you know, when I was a child, um, hunter gatherers were thought of as primitive, living short and brutal lives. You know, within my lifetime, we discovered hunter gatherers grew to be six foot tall, only had to work for a few hours a day, and had a mechanism of mocking people who were too greedy or jealous to stop materialism rising in hunter-gathering societies. We've discovered that uh, we became stunted when we farmed, and we discovered we didn't farm out of choice but out of necessity, and it wasn't much fun. We then discovered that the Industrial Revolution produced the shortest human beings ever, the, the most you know, damaged bodies. And all these things are within, within my, my lifetime, uh, and that's what makes me... Uh, optimistic and, and you could say you know I'm a well-off person but I'm actually sitting in a house in Oxford that was built by a college servant in the 30s it's a, it's a small house not particularly well built but it's absolutely fine for us I'm not a hair shirt person um, but yeah and also uh, I, I guess pandemic helps a bit as well work out what you actually uh, need and what you're lucky uh, to have and I've been lucky enough of course I'm a university professor I know what it's like to stay in a four-star or five-star hotel. I know after the first or second time you do it, it's not that special. But the, the danger is, you know, I can tell people uh, these things, but, but there's this kind of gnawing feeling that you'll be happy if you have something. The trickiest one is travel. Uh, you can get people to change all kinds of behavior. You can get them to give it their car and so on. But telling youngsters uh, that 
it would be better if they didn't travel is is hard. You can tell them, explore where you are first. But I think we will need ways of moving around the world. Uh, but they could be slow. Uh, but we, we are not going to stop people's instinct to move because that's quite innate in us, an instinct to explore. Yes, yeah. Another uh, counterintuitive idea, I guess, is this idea um, about the pace of change and the standstill in, in a potential standstill or future standstill in innovation and technology. Yes, um, yes. Yeah, this, 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 this is the biggest thing I think I found in slowdown. You know, we are constantly told the world has never changed as fast as it's changing now, uh, but it will never change as, as slow again, these kind of things. And people love the idea because they're stressed in their lives often of thinking, I'm stressed because change is happening so fast. But you've only got to look at your grandparents' lives and, and look at what existed when they were born and what existed when they died. I mean, for my grandparents, um, I'm 52, so they're quite old. Uh, they, they were... Um, Two of them were born in the era of Queen Victoria, just, and they were born when there were not tractors in the fields. Uh, there were horses. <laughs> they saw air flight invented, not just invented, but, but actually become something that was mass used. They saw people land on the moon. They saw the introduction of computers. Uh, and then we in our lives go, oh, but I got the internet. We're going, that wasn't quite as big. Um, they saw, well, before them, but the telephone, you know, incredible innovation, the ability to speak. Uh, with people remotely and the telephone is a much bigger innovation than seeing somebody on a video screen uh, the innovations have been less my, my favorite example in the book was the big innovation fair that happens every year in the us last year 2019 the biggest headline was that somebody had invented a mobile phone where you could bend the screen uh, and that that kind of gives you the idea of how they'd run out of new things to do What's the driver of that, do you think? Why would that be the case? Well, I mean, I guess before that, I've got to say, you know, uh, a lot of breathless uh, reports uh, on the Internet and, and serious uh, debate and discussions um, about, you know, AI, uh, gene splicing, which are various gene-related uh, technologies and so forth. And I'm just wondering, data, data is, is one thing, but in, in terms of trying to understand the motor and, 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 and logic of change, why would it be the case that... Uh, innovation would slow down oh okay because our innovations uh were connected uh to to a, a change that happened with capitalism and with with the the uh discovery that we could get energy from coal and then make electricity and once you've discovered electricity the first set of things to be invented there's a lot of them to find there's a lot you can do but every decade after that, it, it reduces. I think the 30s, 1930s, uh, was actually the highest rate of these innovations, not even the, the Second World War. We haven't invented a new kind of electricity, um, something else to do. The internet um, came from ARPANET. It was a Cold War thing. I was I was at uh, university in Newcastle upon Tyne in 1986. We were lucky. We were on the main one of the main nodes. We had email in 1986. Um, you know, that's a long time ago. And you, you do, it has made a big change. Um, the five biggest companies in the US are Google, Amazon, Microsoft, Apple, and Netflix. You know, that's, and if you look back, uh, only 20 years, less than that, the biggest companies were all involved in oil. They were oil companies or Walmart which essentially is a car park with a shop in the middle of it. So it's also also oil. Um, 
So we get, because of this domination now by these companies connected to computing, we kind of think things are still changing rapidly, but they're just monopoly control. You know, a Google search engine is a really easy thing to program. Uh, it's a monopoly control that makes it powerful. Amazon, which actually, in terms of sustainability, is a very, very good idea. Um, having your goods brought to you by a single truck going up and down your street makes much more sense than endlessly driving yourself somewhere. Um, but it's, it's the monopoly control of it that, that makes it profitable, not the clever computing. Facebook famously was programmed by a university student. Any geek could have programmed Facebook at, at university. It's the particular greed of the United States, I think, managed to, to get them to capture uh, these things. And we shouldn't see it as, we shouldn't see it as a sign of, of speeding up. The fact that we have these monopolies in control of something, is a sign of it's kind of slowed down, it's being captured. It's interesting you say that, and, and that makes a lot of sense. And yet for a lot of people, their experience, I think, uh, driven by pervasive social media and the email, it means uh, that it feels like things are uh, never ending 24 seven, that you can get a work email at any time you're expected to, uh, you know, somehow uh, to, 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 you know, to, to, to respond. And just this interconnected, uh, never stop uh, technology communications world we live in is undoubtedly hugely stressful and and doesn't feel to uh, most people that it's 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 slow down. Well, it's not as stressful as a sixty-hour working week in a factory, which which you know we used to have, and it took a lot of effort to get that down from sixty hours. And, and we have a propensity to do this to ourselves. There's a lovely account. I think it's of Darwin when the postal system would, would deliver three or four postal deliveries a day when it was done, you know. So he, Darwin could be getting one set of letters in the morning, another set of letters at, at noon, another for tea, and then another set for supper. And these were delivered by, by post people, postmen in most cases. Um, I was shocked to discover that. I had no idea that. Yeah. Post, yeah. So they do it. But, so we have, we have this happening to us, but also... We have the propensity, we're, we're learning, to put emails aside and deal with them later, to, to decide that we are going to try and sleep the amount we should sleep. We're going to spend uh, time with people that, that we should spend. Um, it, there were times when I was particularly stressed with email, and I'm not great at it now, um, but you know, it is something you can learn to, to deal with. And in terms of sustainability, you know, the absolute collapse of, of receiving things on paper uh, is a good thing um so and, and, and as i say you know email it's a bit like um texting um you know it's it's now quite an old technology and it's not people be able to demand to be in your time what was really intrusive was when people could phone you up at any time and now they can't because you turn you turn the sound on your phone off you don't have a landline. Many, many people don't have a landline because everybody in the household has their own mobile phone, which means you're, you're not picking the phone up for somebody else. You know, that, and that's the kind of intrusiveness that has gone away. We've, we've, we're beginning to work out how to protect our lives uh, better. And that's, and that's easy as long as the technology doesn't change. If somebody invents something new, uh, so something that can talk directly into your brain, then we're in trouble. 
if somebody invents a form of transportation, uh, a bit like Star Trek, uh, where you can just instantaneously move from one place to another, then we're in trouble. Then we've got enough in Yes, yes. So what are the socioeconomic uh, implications of this idea of, of a slowdown in technology and innovation? The really interesting one is how we end up living lives that are so much more similar to our children, if you're more, more age, than we live to our parents. Uh, we are used to generational change, and we still talk greatly about generational change. We talk about the Zoomers and Generation Z and Generation uh, Y, because we had these six or seven generations of incredible change. Before then, for the vast majority of people, even in the UK, life was very similar to their parents. You were in a village. You did what mum or dad did later. You lived in the kind of house that mum or dad had. You washed clothes in the same kind of way that, that they did. Uh, it was kind of groundhog generation again and again for most people with the intermittent war and occasional great change. Then you get capitalism comes along, industrialization comes along, and every generation is living a life very unlike their parents, finding it hard to understand them, feeling disconnected and not knowing where things are going. Now that that rate of change has reduced, now that we're using the same technology that our children use, okay, they might use Snapchat and I don't, but it isn't that different. Um, now they're looking at the same kind of jobs that, that we do. We're not inventing that many new jobs. We still have constant AI scares. I'm skeptical about AI in the slowdown book because um, I've been introduced to four AI revolutions in my lifetime. And, and, and in, my, in my PhD, I, I remember putting in, uh, they just about managed to get an AI to be able to emulate a, a sea slug. Um, now it's seen as a big thing to do. Uh, our current obsessions with AI are about pattern recognition. Uh, so the ability to recognize photographs, the ability to translate between languages automatically. Uh, this is, this is a technology of pattern recognition. It's, it's not, um, you know, when you talk, uh, to that machine in your kitchen, uh, and ask it to play you something from Spotify, it's pattern recognizing your voice. Uh, and it works because most of your requests are similar to other people's requests. You've only got to think of something really obscure to ask it to see it fail. Um, so, so it's not, it isn't that revolutionary. I, I can bore you endlessly on this, but the most, <laughs> the, 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 most, the most revolutionary thing in AI, and it really annoy AI enthusiasts, is John Conway's Game of Life of 1968. Um, John Conway invented uh, a little set of rules for how cells could turn on and off in an infinite board. And it actually allows you to create a logic gun, which would allow you to create a computer, which in effect could program itself. And this was 1968. Now that was revolutionary. That was exciting. Uh, and that was new, new, but it's a long, long, long time ago. Yes, but I suppose in one aspect of that is that, you know, if you take the, should we say the, the iPhone, uh, I mean, by, uh, it's well known that all of those bits were, were lying around in different areas in Xerox Park, all that kind of thing. And they were all yes. put together into something that is radically new. Like, you know, being able to, uh, you know, see people, to have your computer in your hand, all of that kind of thing. It was new, and, and yet uh, it, it wasn't a breakthrough technology. It was lots of technologies that had been around. Uh, they reassembled assembled in a particular way. That potential presumably still remains. It presumably does, and you know the world will change in future. It's not going to suddenly stop. 
Um, but the main thing that Apple did was to get you to love it. Uh, you know, it was the shape, it was the curve, uh, and it was also the expense. It was the idea that you're getting something very special that was quite, uh, still is yeah. quite yeah. costly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but when you look, you know, so I have an Apple phone. I have um, Word on this and other things. I don't try and word process documents on my phone, even though I can. It doesn't work for me. It's too small. I do use it as a as a phone. Um, I do use it to check emails. But I use it because of a sort of sense of insecurity. That I must always be connected. Um, but I am only using a tiny fraction of, of what it can do. And the kind of the, one of the funniest things is it turned out that the quality of audio on an Apple phone is really good. So that if you're doing an interview with somebody, um, it was actually better than, than, than a, a studio line for the BBC. And they, they'd ask you, just press memo record on your Apple phone and send the, the audio. Um, <laughs> you know, but, yeah. but, you know, if in my head, that's the kind of most recent innovation in the last two years yes. is simply high quality audio recording. It yeah. isn't a, it's not a huge, it's no, not a huge no. step forward. Even getting a little, you know, get, if if we could get a little hologram of you now, a bit like Star Wars, and you'd be appearing, okay, it'd be interesting. But we we can do this discussion just as well without actually seeing each other. Yes, I suppose I I, I wanted to move on, but I can't help thinking that you know robots uh, for car manufacturing, but you know. Uh, those technologies which, so, so we're talking about consumer technologies on the one hand, but the technologies that go into industrial production and that kind of thing, that presumably will, could potentially, you know, uh, I mean, they talk about the algorithms that, you know, are going to get rid of lawyers or I don't know what uh, in terms of, but, you know, significant potential there. But I suppose we've, we've already... No, no, let's talk, it's worth talking briefly about it. Yeah. We've had 200 years of this. Like right across Yorkshire, where my family came from, people used to weave in cottages, and then the looms came came along. Uh, I grew up in Oxford. Uh, the the most common job in Oxford was going to work in a car factory. Forty thousand people. It was a terrible job. My dad took me into the car factory to make me work harder at school. Uh, you know, uh, now you can go to the Oxford car factory, and it's it's beautiful. They're making the electric mini. Um, it's one thousand two hundred silent robots, and it's stunning to watch. But it isn't that different from those looms it's the same kind of thing and the brilliant thing is human beings were not made to be on production lines so so that that technology i love but it is that automation it's it's largely been done go to any factory that makes almost anything in the world and you don't see it yeah, I suppose the, the worry is the white collar work, the management and so forth. But that's a whole other question. And, and obviously, we, it's okay. fascinating. And I'm finding myself in the, in, the, the, in the place of saying, well, what about this? And what about this? And yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I could go on forever. I was hoping not to, to, get, to get involved in that. But no, it's very, very interesting. It's rich because it makes you think about things again. What yes. about the connection between technological change and socio-cultural uh, change? I'm not saying there's a direct relationship, but presumably in this, we're talking about a technological change not being so important. Change, yeah. social capital, social capital. Have you any thoughts on that? Uh, well, I end the slowdown book talking about Japan, a place that in, in some ways has slowed down a lot, where the current rate of social change is very high. Um, so a, a trite example I end with is how the royal family in Japan have now married into commoners and so on and don't use the same schools as before um it's it's a social change where, where i think we can see accelerations um sexuality is a good example uh the fact that people don't have to hide who they are the fact that people are, are being accepted 
uh, social change about racism. Um, if you like, capitalism partly built up a particular kind of racism based on slavery and superiority, and it was ways in which you could justify growing inequalities. Watching the social change on racism at the moment, that's certainly an acceleration. So, 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 so I end the slowdown book by saying many of the things I can measure are slowing down. And my feeling is that the things that are speeding up are things that I can't measure. But the speeding up change is social and cultural. It is how we respect and treat each other. It is uh, differences between men and women and, and what people say. It is the idea of um, how we view uh, children differently, the extent to which we listen to children, uh, which we never used to do. They really were to be seen and not heard and, you know, used as labour. Uh, and and hopefully, uh, I mean, one we still haven't got to, but we don't tend to think about our last year of life. We don't yes. think about the very, very elderly. And the minute we start thinking about that, we would change our society quite a lot. Um, yes. But we don't. Yes, yes. I, I wonder, are we wondering at times with, with uh, the sense of some of these trends that it, is there a danger of a little bit of uh, complacency for someone reading it to think, actually things are going to work themselves out, you know, we're now <laughs> heading towards zero growth, you know, that'll happen where we don't need to fight for political change, we don't need to, you know, uh, population is, 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 is falling so it's not such an issue, that things kind of are working their way out. Uh, where does the need to, you know, particularly with, with capitalism, which is uh, such a uh, powerful hybrid and mutating form, um, yeah. uh, you know, that there, there, there will be new versions. And uh, as the, the well-known quote, it's easier to imagine an end of the world rather than the end of capitalism. I just want yeah. your thoughts a little bit finally on that topic yeah. of, of, of political change. No, it's a great one to end on because there is a danger of complacency by looking at these trends and saying that they are in average going that way. I, I did it mainly because so many many of the younger people than, than me that I teach uh, have so little hope for the future. They, 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 you know, they, they really think that you shouldn't have children at all because there's no hope the planet is going to burn, we will have wars, fascism will rise and so on. So, so partly I, I, I concentrate on the positive things because I think we need some hope, because without some hope, there is a great danger that people then don't fight for the positive changes that are needed to get this better world that we that is entirely possible. It, the problem with capitalism is it concentrates money into the hands of a few, and then they pay think tanks and other people uh, to try to dominate. The interesting thing I've noticed recently is just how inane the arguments from the paid puppets have been. Um, but... Um, you know, and I'm hoping that the younger generation also see, sees that uh, as well. But you do have to fight. Uh, I, I once uh, wrote a lovely edited book, uh, I've forgotten the title, with Mary Shaw and George David Smith, where we looked at the greatest advances in, in medicine that had been made over 200 years and social medicine society in general. And we went back and tried to find the original leaflet or pamphlet suggesting this be done. So an example was in the 1930s, somebody produced a pamphlet suggesting that doctors uh, in England might want to work together and set up a practice where they all support each other and where you go if you're ill rather than having the individual doctor. Radical. <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was radical at the time. And the nice thing about this was that every single, and you could also look at the you know, beginning of abolition of slavery and bigger things as well, but every single, every single thing that's got better 
has only got better because somebody, normally a generation, if not two earlier, suggested it and argued for it. And, and the sad thing, or the thing to kind of forget about, is for every one of those effective documents, or nowadays it would be a YouTube video, there, of course, there of course were tens of thousands of ones that, that never worked or got anywhere. But nothing good ever happens without somebody pushing for it. Uh, so so you, you, are, you are completely right. But they need to know that they can get it. They need the optimism. I think this is a huge, hugely important question as well. And in terms of uh, how the, the future has been uh, dominated by um, particular pessimistic ideas or the, the ability to imagine the future. I mean, it's a long trend in the environmental movement uh, in terms of the way the stories have been told and the presentation and so forth. But, you know, uh, I, I think what you're saying is very interesting to crowding out uh, the imagination and possibilities. And um, I, I think, um, I forgot the exact term that Mike Hume uses, but um, it, it's, it's not climate essentialism, but it's, it's the whole world just seen into the future through one variable, um, you know, and, and one idea. Um, I, I know there's danger of, uh, in the background, this techno-utopianism thing, which is there as well. But I think this idea of the future is really important. It brings me to finally, what, what's next for you, Danny? Oh, what's, what's next? Uh, the next thing for me is, is a little book about Finland, uh, which is actually called uh, Fintopia, uh, which should come out in the autumn. Uh, and it's an optimistic book because it, you know, people like me tend to write books about things that go wrong, about inequality and angry books. Um, Fintopia is about how, how Finland came over 100 years to end up being the country which is now, officially for the last three years, the happiest country in the world. Uh, but also has an aim to get to carbon zero by 2035. It's run by by uh, five women, including the, the Green Party, uh, in there. And Finland scores first, second, or third on under over 100 social rankings of success around the world. It's the most successful place in the world, the best education system, the lowest rate of homelessness in Europe. You can go on and on and on. And the reason I wrote about Fintopia uh with Nika Kologian, my, my, my Finnish co-author, was that successful places, environmentally successful, socially successful places, tend to be modest and don't shout about their success, whereas places of failure, like the UK at the moment with Boris Johnson, talking about the best track and trace system in the world, or even worse, of course, the USA, making it great again with Trump, the failures shout out about how great they are and lie. The successful examples of human endeavour, because of modesty, tend not to say, look what we're doing here, look, it's working. Uh, and that's why Fintopia is the next project. Well, I, I had hoped to talk to you about that, but there was so much to, to cover and that was such a uh, rich discussion. I, I wish you the very best with, the, with, with this uh, new book and look forward to reading it. And thank you so much for sharing all your, your ideas and inspiration today on the sustainability agenda, Danny. Thanks ever so much for chatting. It's been lovely. If you like what you heard today on the sustainability agenda, we think you'll enjoy Jason Hickel's powerful new book, Less is More, How Degrowth Will Save the World, which shows how we need to transform the dogmas of capitalism to forge a new system that is fit for the 21st century, available online and at all good bookstores. Thank you for listening to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. I hope you found it interesting. It would be great if you could leave a review and share the podcast on social media. You can sign up at iTunes to make sure you don't miss any future episodes.